Welcome to The Waitlist. I'm Alex. I'm a student trainee psychotherapist in the UK. According to Mind, there are 1.6 million people on the waiting list for mental health treatment with the NHS. A further 8 million can't get on the list because they're not deemed unwell enough. My aim for The Waitlist podcast is to explore different ways we can support our own mental health. I'll be interviewing people with a range of perspectives on mental well-being, including psychotherapy. If something piques your interest, I'd encourage you to do your own research. I'll be sharing resources in the show notes. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Matt Phelan is co-founder of The Happiness Index and author of Freedom to be Happy, The Business Case for Happiness. As some of you may know, I volunteer my time working on the leadership committee for TEDx Brighton, and I had the huge pleasure of supporting Matt in taking to that rather intimidating big red dot in April 2022. His talk was fantastic. You should check it out on YouTube or TED.com. In this episode of The Waitlist, we'll explore how we can influence our own mental well-being and the well-being of others at work. Matt, welcome to the waitlist. Thank you for the invite. And obviously, yeah, it was great to meet you through that process. And anyone that ever gets invited, people like Alex that are behind the scenes do so much to help those speakers get into <laughs> a good shape on, on stage. So thank you, Alex. Of course, you did a fab job. So Matt, tell um, for those listening, what is the Happiness Index? Um, I suppose technically the really boring phrase for it is an employee engagement and happiness mm-hmm. platform. But what I, the way I look at it is it's just a way of understanding how your people feel so you can improve the culture. Mm-hmm. And if you work in a company of, say, 20, 30 people, I don't think you need technology to do that. Mm. I think you can do that through your own emotional intelligence. And some people have more emotional intelligence than others, but I do believe that is something you can learn. But once companies get beyond the Dunbar number, which ranges between about 100 and 120, mm-hmm. relationships start to break down. What is that? What's the Dunbar number? So the Dunbar number is how many relationships that you and I on average can hold. So at the centre of that will be your close family and friends. Mm -hmm. Next to that would be maybe your colleagues. And then out of that, maybe people that um, you you know from school or or whatever. And it's, it's partly why we lose contact with people because we don't actually have the brains and the capacity to be Mm -hmm. in touch with thousands of people. Social media has enabled that in a different way, yeah. um, which is maybe a problem we'll talk about later. Um, But what the Happiness Index does is, let's say you're a CEO of a company that's 250 employees, you can just flick it on and understand how everyone's feeling. Mm. And once, and it's really simple because once you know the things that are making people unhappy, you can fix it. Yeah, that's (laughs) it. But sometimes you can't. Mm -hmm. Um, But acknowledging that as well, and we'll talk about some of that later today, but acknowledging stuff that you can't fix is is as important. Otherwise, mm-hmm. let's say someone's really unhappy about something and everyone keeps ignoring it just because they can't do something about mm-hmm. it. You start to question yourself and you think, am I the only person that thinks like right, that? Right, exactly. Um, so it's kind of having the communication, even if it's not a solve, but being able to understand how to talk to each other about what's going on. And, um, yeah. and you think of human beings, we're supposed to... Supposed to live in little tribes yeah the way like we're recording this from london this is a global mega city we're mm-hmm. not our bodies our brains our minds didn't evolve to live with this many people around us yeah um so a little bit of technology helps and that's what the happiness index does for companies awesome and what was your journey to kind of co-found something like this how did you get there um i suppose my 
my journey that led me to be an entrepreneur, I, I had it in the back of my mind. And I do think most entrepreneurs, it is somewhere inside them. And it is something, it is an energy or a, or a, something that is inside you, but you don't always recognize it. Mm-hmm. So you might be listening to this and think, oh, I'm not. But it will be, it, sometimes it's, it's just a desire or, or a voice. And we'll talk about the importance of voices mm-hmm. in a second that is saying, maybe you want to go alone and maybe you want to mm-hmm. try something. But it, I would say it was a toxic work culture that led me to start my first mm-hmm. business. I, I worked in a really nice culture, which is at the Guardian newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, the company I worked for got acquired by the Guardian. And I got to see some really amazing stuff in, in that culture there, Wh- whatever your political views how the culture worked at that time was really amazing. Mm-hmm. And to give you one example, if you work at The Guardian, and I don't know if this is still true today, but The Guardian, um, which is true, The Guardian is owned by the trust, the, um, the Scott Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's owned by trust rather than billionaires and, and all this kind of stuff, which is I think is a great thing. Yeah. Um, and again, that's not just about what your political views are. I just think the fact that it's not owned by a billionaire is a good it's idea. It's more neutral and yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it definitely has its political swings and, and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that I really loved about the culture there is no matter who you are, you can go to the editorial meeting. Mm. So if you're the, I don't know, a sales director in the ad team or mm-hmm. you're a cleaner or whatever, you can come and say, you know what, I think mental health is a really important subject. Mental health of, for example, key workers mm-hmm. just come out of the pandemic. You can go and say that these are the things that I think that The Guardian should be covering. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say everyone does that. Um, just knowing that you can, I never mm. did it, right? But just knowing that I could actually made me feel part of it. Um, and I left there with a great team and I actually went to work in the, um, in the media world. And I went to work for an organization where we didn't have this phrase at the time, but now I would call it toxic masculinity. Right. That's what I kind of walked into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just horrible. I didn't like it. Um, and I just, again, I just had this sense that I needed to get out and I didn't really have a choice um so i just thought i would take my skills which were digital marketing skills which were the early days and i just said my friend my one of my best friends said oh congratulations on your new job and i said i hate it Mm -hmm. i'm leaving i'm just going to do that thing but just do it small for myself and he was like i'll do it with you and it's funny how when you go on a journey just one of your friends saying oh i'll do it with you and makes everything seem better and we 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 started a digital marketing company and built that up and scaled it and and sold it over the years. So the start, sometimes people think comes from like people, if you're listening and you're thinking about starting your own business, people think it's about like an idea. Mm-hmm. I don't ever think it's an idea. I think it's, it's normally a feeling of mm. something that you want to do. And, and people get stuck on the idea because they think, oh, I need to come up with an idea. Like when Facebook was invented, there was loads of other stuff around like Facebook. Mm. It's not like Mark Zuckerberg came up with social media right he didn't mm-hmm. um he just had this sense that there was something that he wanted to do mm-hmm. and it wasn't a business yet right when, when it started you know he was at uni or whatever and just wanted to create this fun tool and obviously it's become something else yeah absolutely it was just that it was something they wanted to do i think it was a dating tool wasn't it originally if they're honest about what that actually was um which was something that they were obviously interested in I like to borrow a question that I heard Alan de Botton share, which is, how are you mad, Matt? Yeah. How are you mad? Oh, that is a good question. <laughs> I think some people sometimes describe the way I think is mm-hmm. when I was growing up, people said, oh, they would, I would always hear, oh, you think so weird. I always used to hear that. Um, and it wasn't until I became, got into entrepreneurship that thinking a little bit differently is actually appreciated. Mm. So when you're at school, 
if you think a little bit differently about certain subjects, and I didn't think I thought differently, it's just how I thought. Mm-hmm. But people would all, that is a phrase I used to hear all the time. Like, uh, we'd be talking about something and people are like, that's such a w- weird way of thinking of it. Mm-hmm. But then when you get into business, that's actually like something that's selected for. Right, exactly. It's like a good thing. Um, yeah. But I think the more I've learned about it, I think some people have, like, I've read about it about local brains and global brains. Mm-hmm. And I don't think either is better or worse, but some people are really great at, taking one subject and getting really deep into it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I like to think about the connections between different subjects and how they could like influence each other. Mm -hmm. Like art and science would be two examples where people think they're really different. When really you look at it, they are actually really connected. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think for me, to answer that question, how mad am I? For me, it's I'm always looking at how different things are connected. And sometimes people think that they they think that's because I'm crazy. Yeah, and maybe I love I that. Am. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like, you know, when we're at school or even like entering a new job or whatever, we're thinking, what can I do to fit in? And actually, sometimes for business, for you, it's what am I doing that helps me stand out? And yeah. sometimes that's conscious or not conscious. Yeah. But it depends on the environment so much as to how that's kind of being received by other people. Yeah. And I think some kids use things like fashion and music to stand out, don't they? Mm -hmm. As they get, as they go through puberty and and become teenagers and all that kind of stuff. But I was never really into that stuff. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I was never either going to be a cool kid either way. I wasn't going to be someone who was wearing the the same stuff that everyone was wearing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was never going to be in the group of kids that wear different things but ironically, they all end up wearing the same different things to stand mm-hmm. out, which is always funny, isn't it? If you watch all those coming of age movies. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was never going to be anything like that. It's mm-hmm. just the way that I think. I'm not, I don't necessarily express myself through other things like that. I just don't feel they're just not they're not thing, they're things I like, but they're not things I'm super interested mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Whereas business I am. I love the thought of like how you can change things based on based on an organization or a business. Yeah, I love that. Well, thinking about organizations and businesses, how do you think they can impact our mental well-being? This is something that I've thought about a lot mm-hmm. um, and actually goes back, goes back to Brighton. And I'll share with some people some data from, from that TEDx talk, which is called 12 Million Lessons in Happiness, which is we've observed in our data set that you're the average happiness of those around you. Mm-hmm. And this is how businesses can impact it because if you think of the, uh, the book, which an amazing book that I've reread recently, 1984 by George Orwell. Mm-hmm. Have you A, read it or B, read it recently? I haven't read it recently, but I have read it. I must admit it was probably at school. Yeah, I'm pushing everyone to, if you've not read it, read it. And if you've not read it recently, read it. It is so, it is so topical to mm-hmm. the world at the moment. And... The, the time when that was written, I think it was 1951, mm-hmm. people were worrying about the impact of states on the population. Yeah. I think positive and, negative, positive and negatively, that still exists, mm-hmm. that, that worry and control and not. Mm-hmm. But there's a, an equal worry now um, because of their power and size and technology, which is organizations and companies. Mm. If you are a CEO of an organization, the influence you have on someone's life is huge. Absolutely. From their mental health through. Mm-hmm. So that's um that's single parents, that's that's people that um are pregnant, that's people that are mentally struggling. The decisions you make as a CEO impact the mental health of your employees, full stop. Mm-hmm. Um and I think companies really need to take stock of that. Like a bugbear that I have at the moment is 
and I'm not um, anti venture capital. Mm-hmm. But I do think there is a real issue around responsibility of how you deploy the capital, mm-hmm. which sounds like loads of buzzwords, but I'm going to explain what I mean, which is the happiness index is privately funded by ourselves and some people we know. So we're not anti-capital, but I do think people need to question what and how they're using their capital. Mm-hmm. So for those that don't know venture capital, it's where quite typically at most tech companies you've ever heard of, they will have gone and got capital um and by capital you mean money basically which is money yeah Yeah. investment venture money that's the best way um but you could call it risk money and the way that world looks at things is they go right we're gonna let's say they've got 100 million we're gonna we're gonna spend 100 million on 10 organizations Mm -hmm. and they do the maths that nine of those will fail Mm -hmm. and one will succeed and become like a unicorn or whatever Mm -hmm. whatever it comes and then the nine have just failed but their net gain is that one that became a unicorn made them all the money. The problem with that is mathematically that makes sense as an investor that you, that's, you're spreading your bets. The issue when it comes to mental health and back to your question is the collateral damage of the employees in the other nine and also what is required to grow at an abnormal rate to achieve a unicorn. So um, there is so much to this subject and I do believe that companies well, well i know from the data and the, and the stats that companies who look after employees financially perform better but it's about whether you look at over the short term or long term because you can push people in the short term really hard stretch it and you can make a company look good in the numbers but like all of us at home we know if we put if, if you try and sprint a marathon it's gonna end exactly. up badly yeah and that's what happens in business so uh, that's why I wanted to come on today because that this particular subject, mm-hmm. CEOs have a huge responsibility personally, I think, to that. Mm-hmm. And so if people are coming to to you to ask some of those questions about their own business or even, you know, some of those bigger CEOs with thousands of people within their, within their company, what kind of things are you asking them and what are you expecting them to ask you about how their workforce should be? feeling and thinking about their well-being yeah so it starts with feeling you have to care Mm. like there are so the happiness index is is a really marmite brand on purpose Mm -hmm. because if you're a ceo and you don't care and you go to our website and it's all pink and yellow um based off the sex pistols that's where we got Mm -hmm. our inspiration from Love that you just click off Mm. you just don't work with us um but if you do actually believe that that is a starting point, and I'll give a shout out, I was with an organization called Atlas FM uh, this week. They are at one of, they've employed, they employ 10,000 people of which about 9,500 of those are cleaners. Mm-hmm. And it's there on their walls. Like we deliver happiness. Like they, that's what they talk about. So when I met the CEO and also just to caveat, every company in the world gets it wrong and has un- unhappy yeah, employees, right. including the happiness mm-hmm. index. Um, we all get it wrong. But the fact that people are trying mm-hmm. to make it better means that over time it's better than if you don't. Right. Um, and I guess as well, like, you know, to your point of what you're saying earlier at The Guardian, like knowing that senior leadership are making an effort for you to have a voice or, you know, move towards happiness. Not to say that's wholly enough, but it at least makes a difference to how you feel about that organization, seeing people in power quote unquote in the business actually taking it somewhat seriously yeah and this is why i love the new generation of employees that are coming through because if you speak to people that don't want to open their minds what they'll say is like oh 
new generation of people coming mm-hmm. through. They don't want to work hard mm-hmm. and they just care about like cappuccino frappes or whatever. And they don't actually want to come to work to work. It's just simply not true. Mm. It's funny. I was um, I was presenting at Essex University this week mm-hmm. and I just took the opportunity to explain to them how many business leaders think that their generation think, mm-hmm. which is ironic because they're all doing second jobs to pay for university. Mm-hmm. They're all absolutely busting their butts to to do their degrees. So the reality is that the, it's just a generational thing. Every generation think that the next generation are lazy. Mm-hmm. It's just what happens. You watch any movie about the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way back, that is what you'll see, any coming of, of age movie. So I think essentially the next generation of people that are coming through are not accepting it. Mm-hmm. They're not accepting companies that, that don't give a damn about them. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And, and it just means even if you don't care, you, you actually do need to focus on this stuff because it's going to impact the talent you attract and also whether you retain it. Yeah, absolutely. And we were saying about kind of this, not everyone's getting it right, but having an intention mm. is important with those types of questions that you're having with CEOs or even just people leaders, right? Like what types of um, conversations are you having about where do I, where do I start? Yeah. The thing that I remind a CEO, or if it's specifically a CEO, I always ask them like, where would you like to work? Mm. And I always ask them about when they did their best work. Mm -hmm. And, And also I reverse it around. I'm like, do you, would you do would you do your best work if you worked in a company where you're deeply unhappy mm-hmm. and every Monday morning you dreaded to go into work? Mm-hmm. And you put it, I try and put them back back in their shoes. And that is one positive that we can take from the pandemic is that CEOs for the first time, I think many CEOs uh, who were CEOs before the pandemic had had gone through a system where their career had just risen, and they and and there are CEOs that had mental. Um, health issues but many of them felt like mental health was just something that gets talked about in the newspapers Mm -hmm. and wasn't a real thing Mm -hmm. and they would kind of acknowledge it but didn't really believe it but I've not met a CEO including myself who didn't struggle in the pandemic Mm -hmm. we all did and it was a tough time if you're running a business and I think that realization amongst CEOs the ones that didn't believe in it before I did believe in it before um it made a lot of those CEOs think, oh, if I struggled, maybe my employees do. And then when you've struggled yourself, you have a more a greater understanding and you start to think, well, if I struggled, then that impacted my performance. Maybe if my employees are struggling regularly and it impacts their performance, mm-hmm. maybe we should take this more seriously. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, what a great leveller that was, you know, not to say that I'm grateful for what happened. And obviously that was a challenging time for lots of people, but, you know, lots of kind of office based work and I know that's not everyone's role but yeah. it feels like you know it, it's many people's role um meant that everyone was staring at a screen for eight hours a day and yeah. what a great leveler that is like yeah. <laughs> you know if the CEO no longer has the corner office and the tea being made or whatever yeah, I know that's such a stereotype yeah. but you know everyone was kind of in the same boat in many ways yeah but clearly there were differences and you know there were people that didn't have a spare room to go and yep. disappear to. And they're working off their kitchen with their housemates. And it's good to hear that you've experienced talking to people that found a bit of an insight in some of the challenges with mental well-being at work. Yeah. And I, another thing I noticed about CEOs' mental health specifically as well, 
And there's a really good book by um, someone who's also Brighton-based, Tom Nixon, called Source. Um, Source. Yeah. And one other myth related to, to that particular subject, Tom's book doesn't specifically say this part, but I do think there was a myth amongst CEOs. And we, Alex and I were talking off air about whether we were introverts or learned introverts mm-hmm. or extroverts or whatever. And one of the things we talk a lot about the happiness index is energy because mm-hmm. everything's energy. If you get back, if you get back to l- looking at physics and all that kind of stuff. And the, this is where my brain starts going off into different mm-hmm. worlds. But one myth that I realized that many of us believed is that the source of the energy in a company comes from a CEO mm-hmm. and CEOs felt that responsibility to deliver the energy. Mm-hmm. And many CEOs are charismatic and they can do that just like, someone who brings that stage presence. Mm-hmm. But I think the real skill is having a vision and a purpose that energizes the people mm. because that energy and purpose that feeds from the inside. Whereas if your energy is coming from someone else and mm-hmm. you can, and, and think to the listeners, think about this in all parts of your life with your siblings, romantic relationships, um, your work relationships. Think about that. If your energy is always coming from someone else, Mm -hmm. that's not sustainable because one, you've become dependent on someone else. And two, that person is actually expending all that energy on you as well. But Mm -hmm. once that physical link got broke between CEOs and their employees, I think that exposed that myth because Mm -hmm. if your organization wasn't, didn't have a strong vision and a strong purpose and the CEO wasn't there to motivate people, I think that created a lot of gaps within organizations. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that, that those are the two things that I will always take from it, like understanding that we all have mental health and mm-hmm. um, mental illness is separate. I always make the point of, I remember being taught that mm-hmm. mental illness and mental health are different. Mental mm-hmm. I- illness is something that someone may be suffering from. Mental health is something that we all have. Mm-hmm. And now I think the pandemic taught that in CEOs that specifically and B, um, CEOs are not the source of the energy. They can be charismatic, um, mm-hmm. but you don't need to be an extrovert. Um, to be a leader you need to be able to create a vision and purpose that energizes people yeah and I think I I love the idea of exchanging energy I think it comes back to what you were saying at the beginning around your work I can't remember the words you said but your workplace kind of being the sum of all of the parts of the people around you yeah Um, and it feels like it's an investment like I talk a lot and one of the reasons that I kind of volunteer in my spare time is because I genuinely believe like a community is not where you live or where you work. It's yeah. what you invest your energy in. Totally. And I think it's always um, easy to forget because you feel like, oh, well, my work's got a bit of a shit culture or whatever. Yeah. Well, what are you, what are you personally doing about it? Clearly the company has a responsibility and the CEO and yeah. the people around them, but you're also part of that if you're totally in a workplace. I also love the question that you said around like, when do you work at your best? Yeah. And I think that's really empowering because that's not necessarily a question that just a CEO can ask. It can be a question that you, you know, if a new person comes on board, that's the same level as you, or even a bit yeah. higher, you can understand so much about each other around yeah. what environment do you need for you to be able to deliver what we need and, yeah. and why we're employing you. So I feel like that's a really good takeaway that people listening can kind of use to say, when are you at your best and how can we make that happen? Yeah. And I, I think that's where people get confused about the word data because data scares mm-hmm. people because they think of like, they might have hated numbers. GCSE mm-hmm. maths mm-hmm. and numbers or whatever. And I, and I definitely hated all that. But it's when you're asking your friends or your colleagues questions, 
you are doing a form of data collection mm -hmm. and that data allows you to work better together. So I, I, I apologize to Guggen and Alex, who I will, I've, I have permission to share this story, but they're two people that work in my team. Mm -hmm. we, we're aware for our data what the top drivers of happiness and engagement are, but they vary from person to person. Mm -hmm. And two of, two of the top eight are clarity. Um, so do you have clarity on what your role is? And another one is freedom to take opportunities. Mm -hmm. For Alex, um, the number one driver for Alex is freedom to take opportunities. Mm -hmm. For Gugs, it is clarity. Now, if I manage them both in the same way, um, I wouldn't be helping them to be happy and engaged at work. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example, right? If I work with Alex, he just wants to know what needs to be achieved and, and the time frame. And... He just wants to come back. He will come to me when he needs me. Mm -hmm. If I contact him, he thinks I'm micromanaging him. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas Gugs, um, her one is clarity um, and relationships is also high for her. So she wants to know what this same starting point, but she wants to come back to me. She likes to come back to me to check in on regular basis. So the communication is a different way. But also I know if I don't check contact her every now and then just to see how it's going. She thinks I don't care. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I do the same activity to Alex, he thinks I'm micromanaging him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So going back to your point around the question, it doesn't have to be our questions or that question. I love that. How mad are you question? But questions are uh, a way of accessing new data and information. And, and for me, data and information isn't supposed to, what, to tell you what to do. It's just to help you work better. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is. Totally. Yeah. And in terms of... On the theme of questions, if somebody perhaps is listening to this and maybe they work alongside people that they think, are they okay? Are they, are they struggling? What's going on for them? Yeah. What have you observed like through the happiness index or through running your own businesses as way in, ways into that conversation? I feel like sometimes it can be such a taboo to kind of ask people how they are in a meaningful yeah. way. I think the starting point, if we go back to the data again, just to glean information out to help us in that, to answer that question, one of the top drivers of happiness is psychological safety. Mm -hmm. So we've got to know each other a little bit over the last few months. Um, but if you know someone really well, you feel more safe to ask what mm. might be a personal question. Mm -hmm. So I think with all of these things, it's about the bigger culture of psychological safety because the same question to a different person could offend someone. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the starting point for all of this is a, is a culture of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And then those types of, though, that then we get into the conversations around how you structure things to make those conversations mm -hmm. more normal, mm -hmm. um, which, which they should be. But I always put the caveat out there, which is unless psychological safety exists, the ideas and the strategy you'll put in place are, are doomed to fail because mm. you might, for example, create, let's think you create like a couple of sessions a week where anyone can drop in and they can discuss with HR their problems. But if you don't trust HR, mm -hmm. you're not going to do that. Right. Um, and I think that exists. Everything that we always say that we're talking about work also is at home and, and is in life. So that's that's in your friendship groups. That's in your relationships that's that's with your work colleagues mm -hmm. so i would always point people back to psychological safety as, as a starting point yeah i, I really like that point because i think sometimes particularly in bigger businesses and maybe i'm i'm kind of tying them all with the same brush here but 
the reminder of kind of deeds, not words can be so important. Like we can have the PowerPoint strategy that shares, shares these are our values yeah. or whatever, but unless you know, you genuinely have an open door policy or whatever it might be that you're saying, those things can really kind of fall by the wayside because you don't have that psychological safety. Yeah. What are the sorts of things that you um, have observed in time in terms of establishing psychological safety and who who's responsible for doing that in a business? Yeah. It's, a, it's a really good question. I think if it, the customers of the happiness index are is part of their strategy, mm-hmm. but I don't think that has to be the only way of doing it mm-hmm. but i think the first point is doing what we're doing now like there's no reason why um the ceo of any organization couldn't be sitting down with someone else in the organization doing an interview on psychological safety because mm-hmm. the first thing is defining what you mean by it mm-hmm. and if you people go and google it now you'll get a thousand different definitions mm-hmm. but establishing what you all mean by it for me psychological safety means if someone makes a mistake, they're not going to get fired for it mm. because mistakes mm-hmm. are part of innovation. It's how you learn. Mm-hmm. But if you think like every time you're going to try and do something new, you're going to get fired, mm-hmm. you're not going to feel safe. So that's just one part of it. Um, another part is like, which we, we call freedom to be human, like not fearing. And that's why there's so much debate around like the Qatar World Cup. And let's take um, um, if, if you were homosexual in Qatar, you couldn't discuss that at work. So you're not going to feel safe. Um, if that if that is who you are, mm-hmm. so the context of where the conversation is had is is really important. But I think the starting point is for those for for the leaders to start having those conversations and modelling it, um, and talking about it, and then then you're on a road. But it always has to start exactly like we are now with a conversation. Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you. So, in terms of um, people coming to you and working with the Happiness Index, we've talked quite a bit about that today. You mentioned at the beginning, you know, potentially smaller businesses, thirty people or less. Yeah, that might not be necessary, and, and yeah. you might already be able to establish a culture. What kind of resources do you find helpful beyond the Happiness Index that people yeah. can go and take a look at? I think there's so so much resources out there at the moment and and charities like Mind and so on. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, it starts with the conversations. There, there are so many good resources out there, but they're, they're useless unless you actually question it and talk about it. So, mm-hmm. so go, go and, anyways, listen, go and Google some like mental health tips as an example, but then sit down like sit down as a team and discuss it like, oh, would that work here? Would that not? Mm-hmm. And start the conversation. We had um, we had mental health um, first aid training, mm-hmm. which sometimes people, some people think is great and some people think it's terrible because they think lots of companies think that's the answer to everything. Mm. Um, and some people say that's a band aid. And for um, people that don't know what that is, can you give a brief overview? Yeah. So how to have the conversations and what to do and what not to do also, which is as important. Mm. Because you're going through your training, Alex, and you're, mm-hmm. you're going to become qualified in, the, in this stuff. But most people, the, the, okay, the best example would be if someone um, has a, a physical medical issue in the street, as a bystander, you don't get in there and start trying to fix the wound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You just know that your job is to call 99, mm-hmm. possibly put a bit of pressure if it's blood on there. Mm-hmm. It's understanding that you have a basic level and that's okay and what your job is in that situation. So I'll give you a real life example. If someone um, that I learned from the training, if someone in your team calls you and says they want to commit suicide, mm-hmm. um, which we, we've had that in our in our, in our company, mm-hmm. your it trains you that your job is to keep them on the phone, yeah, and to get them to the next morning. Mm-hmm. So 
for me, that's massive a massive point because you could be having that conversation where you then say, oh, why don't you just, just go for a walk? Mm. And you give out some advice. Mm-hmm. I think if you think of like Samaritan's training, some of my friends who've done that to answer the phones, you never give advice. Yeah. But unless you've been on that training, you don't know that. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And it's that it's that starting point because a lot of us try and fix problems, mm-hmm. but it's just training on, on, on what to do. And I, I remember Chris passing that information on to me when he'd been on the training. And that, that's just such basic knowledge we should all have, mm-hmm. isn't it? Which is mm-hmm. your job is to keep that person on the phone. I, I wouldn't have known that before. Mm-hmm. I would have thought, I'll try and make them feel a little bit better and then maybe offer some advice, mm-hmm. which is definitely not what you should be doing because I'm not qualified in mental health. I have an understanding in the area. But once you've got some basic strategy, strategies to, of what to do, mm-hmm. that helps you just like um, now it's more common for people to have like PCR training on how to resuscitate mm-hmm. someone. That's just to get keep someone alive until the ambulance gets there. Absolutely, and that's in in mental health first aid training. That's that it's a similar mm-hmm. scenario. And I think as well, like zooming in, zooming out from mental health training, and you know, obviously some really difficult topics. I think that's true across the board. Where particularly in organisations, we can feel like, right, how do we fix this problem, issue, whatever? Yeah. It's kind of like something to be solved yeah and i think coming back to kind of prioritizing people's mental well-being in the workplace it's not necessarily that you're looking for like the number one fix and you've ticked that box and arrived there it's actually having being able to facilitate a culture where you can metaphorically keep someone on the phone yeah absolutely and i think we have a product in the happiness index called employee voice Mm -hmm. so it's how people it scares people because Employees can feedback 24-7 how they feel. Mm -hmm. So most companies think, 50% of companies have never done a survey, but most companies that do survey send one out every one or two years. Mm -hmm. And that's that's like common. So when a company thinks about that, they think that's a lot of work once a year. We do this big survey, then Mm -hmm. we do this big report, Mm -hmm. and then we have to follow it up, blah, blah, blah. So they think if I did it every second, that's going to be a nightmare. Um, In reality, what we observe is... Sometimes people just need to get something off their chest and then they feel better. I even remember, even because we use our own products, I remember someone just downloading loads of stuff and then they said, by the way, I don't want anything to, anyone to do anything about this. I just need to get it off my chest. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because when you receive information, you always feel you've got to do something about it. And mm-hmm. I'm really bad at this. And, and I'm obviously in talk mode because you're interviewing me. But most people just want someone to listen to them. Absolutely. And for that person, getting that stuff off their chest, but saying, I don't want you to do anything about it, that could only work because they know that you're going to read it, right? Like if you had a culture where, um, you know, you have an annual survey once a year and that's great. It sounds like, you know, 50% of uh, organizations aren't doing that. Yeah. But if you don't know whether it's going to be heard that's really going to change how you feedback and where you feedback too, because that's going to come off their chest somewhere. There's a a couple of points there. There's no such thing as feedback fatigue. There's just action fatigue. Mm -hmm. People will stop telling you if you don't do something about it. So there is an an action element to it. And I know we we sort of touched on energy a lot today and Mm -hmm. we talked about energetic connections. The feedback is, is energy, right? And it's going somewhere. Sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's negative. When the energy is negative, companies sometimes then have the response that they want to put their fingers in their ears and not hear. Mm-hmm. So sometimes companies start working with us in the, six, the first six months, they only hear bad stuff mm-hmm. because 
this energy has been sitting there and all this information is sitting there and now everyone's downloaded it. Got to go somewhere. And mm-hmm. then there, there, there is a natural response to think, oh, wow, we've opened up Pandora's box. Let's, let's shut it. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. not. Um, but energy has to go somewhere, right? So in a modern world, it will go on Glassdoor. It will go on social media. It will go, um, the Brewdog employees wrote letters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It will go somewhere. And like I always say to people, if it comes to you, you can fix it. You can do something about it. You can acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. No company is perfect. So we've all got problems. We have to admit that first. Mm-hmm. But by taking that energy to you and you doing something and, and channeling it into a, into a positive place, that's that's the right thing to do. But mm-hmm. so many people fear it um, and they really worry. Uh, um, but your employees are talking about all this stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. You've just suddenly become aware of it. Mm. Um, and you can either bury your head in the sand again um, or you can accept it and and use it and turn it into a positive yeah absolutely that's great so my my final question really is given the journey that you've been on with the happiness index and also with running businesses being part of businesses what's the one thing that you've learned that you didn't know that you would like people to understand now yeah, I was really, really, really fortunate that our head of neuroscience, Clive Highland, um, was my first ever coach. Mm-hmm. So I love sports. So I always thought, right, I can't make it as a sports person, but all good sports people have a coach. So for me to get a coach was not like a weird thing mm-hmm. in 2008, even though it's become more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, I always had a coach. And the thing that um, I remember in the first session that Clive taught me were, it was just a phrase he said. He said, like, remember, I thought it was going to be about like business strategy, the meeting. But he he did a session with us. He's now the head of neuroscience at the Happiness Index. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said to to Chris and I, my co-founder, you need to remember to listen to your body. Mm. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of us are better at listening to our bodies than others. And that advice, it was so important. And I would say, and this isn't just for an entrepreneurial route. This is just listen to your body. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a source of data and it's telling you things. Like my... My my tell for me is I get um, mouth ulcers, mm-hmm. and it, and mouth ulcers not only are they horrible to get, they actually stop you smiling. And it's funny oh. when you can't <laughs> smile and you can't smile at other people, you actually end up in, in actually a negative mm. thing because no one's ever smiling at you. People think that you're grumpy, and, and that people think something's up. So like my body's always telling me stuff, um, and I honestly don't think without that advice I would have survived the journey because it's yeah. allowed me to spot your. Your emotions and your body are basically telling you stuff, but we're quite often taught to ignore it. Mm-hmm. And this is where you have to be really careful between mental health and well-being and resilience training. Mm. Resilience training can't be ignore everything so that you have a collapse one day. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I found it fascinating watching Emma Raducanu um, in her first Wimbledon appearance because old pros like um, the, the guy who swears a lot, John McEnroe, was basically criticising her, saying that she shouldn't have retired or whatever um, in that tournament through injury. Um, and I think later on it came out around anxiety or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything got on top of her, but she retired. And he was critical of her at the time. But guess what? She then came back and won the New York yeah. um, Open. So you and I look at that, I, and I think of it from a performance perspective. If she'd continued in Wimbledon that mm-hmm. year... She may have never come back. 
she may have not been able to then go and do what she did. And she's still so young. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are like, she's not winning every tournament she enters. Well, guess what? She's like, I don't even know how young she is, but she's definitely young. Yeah. And how brave of her to actually be open about that yeah. afterwards and say why she was doing it. I think that's yeah. such an example. And then for her to go on and continue to be successful is yeah. an amazing story. And I feel like in therapy, we talk often about like, the mind and body connection there's lots of books out there that i can put in the show notes one of them that's often referenced is called the body knows the score which is what is the energy that you're holding in your body that your brain's being trying to communicate with you but you haven't been listening or in tune with it not that you're not listening but not not in tune with it and i think in our culture particularly a work culture we aren't as well versed as we could be in actually seeing that as data to your point absolutely um, and it can lead to really serious things like burnout, for example. Yep. Um, a lot of people experience that and it can be challenging to tune in and think, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? Yep. For me personally, I notice it in my jaw. It's interesting you said your mouth and I could yeah. talk to you for hours about what that yeah. could mean. But um, but I, I notice if I'm stressed, my, my jaw feels tight because I've been clenching it and Absolutely. I've not noticed. Yep. It's when I've relaxed i'm like wow my jaw feels tight ah i've probably been stressed for like a week on end or whatever and some people do that with grinding their teeth in their sleep don't they and there's there's all these little things and that is a great book by the way um but that's exact that's exactly what this is about and sometimes people think that's a not a business thing but for me it is because Mm -hmm. that if you're not aware of all that kind of stuff you can't get through to the performance that you needed for, for your job yeah absolutely well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having it's me been on. a great conversation. Do check out the Happiness Index and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. 